Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. So back in college, I was watching a Yankees game, Yes Network, and I think Michael Kay was talking about how Babe Ruth hit a home run or had a great game, like hit three home runs or whatever it was after eating 18 hot dogs before the game. So I, of course, decided to try that. And my record, my personal record, I'm curious yours, I did 13 hot dogs in one sitting. Wow. That might be the most impressive thing I've ever heard about you. <laughs> Not that there's much to compete against, but... You're a nice guy. You're a good dad. And also... Eater of 13 hot dogs. I want to know how many of other Babe Ruth's personal habits <laughs> you've tried to emulate over the years. Well, I don't know <laughs> if I'm able to be bet on on sports books, right? Because like 13 is pretty, pretty high. Have you ever tried the 999? What is that? You go to a game, it's nine innings, nine hot dogs, nine beers. Oh! Nine beers is the hardest one right there. I can do nine hot dogs, no problem. Could you do 13 hot dogs and five beers or does it have to be nine <laughs> of each one? I got to think though, hot dog eating with the Nathan's contest coming up, I can't think of an event that's like worse for the underdog. Like, you know exactly what these guys can and can't do. Yeah. Every year it's Joey Chestnut. Is there ever a route to an underdog winning the hot dog contest? I don't know, but there's always people who would relish the opportunity to try. Oh my God. There's got to be like a Tanya Harding situation in order to place a bet on Joey Chestnut. Because right now I'm seeing covers.com. The odds for Joey Chestnut right now is minus 20. 2,500. <laughs> and the women's contest winner, Miki Sudo, is, is <laughs> minus 5,000. I do like that you can bet the over-under on an individual's hot dogs, though. Joey Chestnut's over-under 74 and a half hot dogs. My God. That's a kind of a cool number because last year he set the record, world record, but with 76. So even if he doesn't do as good, he could still hit the over. Down year for Joey? Yeah. So seriously... When a record is set by a little bit of an amount, that just means the athletes are trying harder. Like Roger Maris hit 61 home runs instead of 60, right? But if you break a record by a lot, something has changed. Something fundamentally different is going on. And Joey Chestnut is just like an all-time freak genetically. Also in his willingness to give it all for his sport. You know, there was that study out that showed how many minutes of your life you lose for every hot dog you eat came out last year. Oh, no. I, I saw something last night that said, according to that study, Joey Chestnut has already given up 1.3 years of his life 
just by eating hot dogs. And let's be frank about this. Oh, no. Anyone who's betting on this has some real issues. <laughs> Eight to shoot. Hall, the runner! Loose ball! It's good! With 4.4 to go! Shannon! Don't want to foul! Shannon! From the corner! And it's over! Gonzaga! The flipper still fits! The cry goes up both far and near for underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sideline. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my kid, I ain't even in the guys' league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog. Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Red strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock and awe in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you. They're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! Hey, George, the dream is alive. With speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder, underdog. I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. Welcome to the Underdogs Podcast. I'm your host, co-host, Tom Haverstrow, along with Jordan Brenner and Peter Keating. Guys, we have lots to get into on this show. I've got a vet the bet prepared. It's Wimbledon style. I've got a vet the bet. What is the score, by the way? I think Jordan's been catching up, but I'm still ahead. I think it's three to two. Isn't that right, Jordan? I don't think there's any score. Oh, oh. I, I don't recall ever doing vet the bet. In that case, I'm winning five nothing, or five love, I should say. We are also going to talk to our old friend, Ben Fox of VEASAN. He is going to be joining us to talk about the wildest day in legalized American sports betting history when Paolo Bancaro went number one and the betting markets were all over the place because of a single tweet by Adrian Wojnarowski at ESPN. But you know what we got to talk about first? NBA free agency. That's right. Fireworks are about to explode here for 4th of July weekend, but of course it's free agency time and we have already some big moves being made, including John Wall going to the Clippers magically before free agency begins. <laughs> and you also have DeJounte Murray going from the Spurs to the Atlanta Hawks for Danilo Gallinari and a bunch of first round picks. So we're off to the races and I want to ask Jordan your thoughts so far on what that deal signifies. You, you seem to be befuddled by the Spurs here. I'm shocked on that. It makes me wonder what does Pop know? Because Greg Popovich isn't giving away a player who I love in DeJounte Murray for Gallinari's matching sh- uh, salary and three first-round picks that are probably 20th or worse unless there's some concern about Murray's knee, Murray's fit. Oh, Jordan, how naive. You really believe that this is about 
they don't like DeJounte Murray. I think the opposite. I think the Spurs love DeJounte Murray, and he is so good that he's going to place them out of the running for Victor Wembanyama. Mm. The consensus already, the 2023 number one draft pick, this dude who's seven foot three, 18 years old, and has a seven foot nine wingspan, Jordan. I think that's what's going on here. How can anything like this really be step one in a grand tanking number one draft pick plan? Because even if you blow a team up and you end up with 15 wins, what are your odds of getting the number one pick? Are you willing to do all of this? I think they would probably say it's worth it, right? Yep. Whatever those odds are. You know, you're right. We just saw Sam Presti do this. Where was Sam Presti trained? In the art of, of, of this strategy? That's right. San Antonio. With his ear glued to a phone that you're on the other line of? <laughs> <laughs> what? No. <laughs> when you say, like, why would the Spurs do this? I really do believe that they've done the whole, like, churning through the, the mediocrity, the hamster wheel of mediocrity, mediocrity in the NBA, where, like, they're searching for their next Tim Duncan. They're searching for their next Kawhi Leonard. And if DeJounte Murray is an all-star, a borderline all-star, 25-year-old averaging almost a triple-double, that's great. But he's not Tim Duncan. And you know who might be Tim Duncan, who has a pretty good chance of being the best international prospect ever? Victor Wembanyama, who is already... Okay, but we just went through this whole draft initiative process, which showed Popovich to be a master at exceeding expectations in the draft and building championship teams by picking guys like Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili without needing the number one pick to get them. So it would be a pretty radical shift to say, churning through the bottom. They tanked for Tim Duncan. Yeah. They did this. Those guys don't win anything without Tim Duncan. It's just not a, it's not a sure shot. That's all I'm saying. It's not a sure shot. Tanking is such a, talk about an underdog or a long shot. Tanking is a, tanking is a almost bizarre proposition if you're not guaranteed a better shot than, I mean, what if you end up with number two or three and there's nobody you like there after you've given up a whole season and a good player to get there? Or you win 32 games, 33 games, and 34 games, which is the win total for the San Antonio Spurs the last three years. So if you strike out on Victor Wembanyama or whoever the next stud is, whether it's Scoot Henderson or whatnot, it can't be much worse from a fan experience than just being a 30 win team. Cause that's, it's, it's tough. That's tough. That's a tough place to be in the NBA when you don't have the promise of something great or watching a, an international star like this. I, I think that the risk is very much worth it for, for a prospect like this because they can't keep doing this. What I'm finding interesting is the more I think about this is the Knicks who are presumably going to overpay for Jalen Brunson. Yeah. Possibly by the time, you're listening to this podcast. Wouldn't you, if you were the Knicks, rather you have just acquired multiple first round picks? Wouldn't you rather send a bunch of those picks and salary out to get DeJounte Murray than to spend more money on a lesser player in Jalen Brunson? Granted, you're not giving up picks, but I, I feel like I would have gone all out for DeJounte than settled on a guy who I've got a lot of questions about. Yeah, but doesn't doesn't it seem like they wanted those picks to be able to say they had an insurance policy against their the player they like not wanting to sign with them? Doesn't it seem like they wanted the money to go after the player they like without even caring if he's the best player available or the best fit? And also that boatload, what is it, three future first rounders to say, well, 
we have those. It doesn't matter if guys don't want to come play for us because we still have the first round picks. It all seems so calculated in a kind of dopey way. You know what I mean? To end up with money to go after one player who they're signaling all over the place is the one guy they want and they're going to have to overpay to get him. And then they have a bunch of first round picks. So they say, well, at least we got those. We, you know, we like the 2025 draft a lot better than this draft. That's what we planned all along. It seems like it's PR to me. Leon Rose, who's running the Knicks, it feels like he's trying to win for Leon Rose rather than win for the fans. Like he's setting up his former clients with these rich contracts where it's like <laughs> his son is the agent for Rick, for uh, not Rick Brunson, Brunson. Jalen Brunson is being repped now by Leon Rose's son, where it's just like, come on, like we, it's very transparent what's going on here. And it, it seems like the Knicks are not really caring so much about winning championships so much as it is taking care of their own. And that's a really dangerous place to be in the NBA. So um, with free agency here, you know, people are going to talk about Jalen Brunson ad nauseum. But I'm curious, Jordan, do you have a free agent that you're looking at or a free agency team that you're looking at that's under the radar in the scope of the Underdogs podcast? Yes. So actually, the first thing I was going to say is that the underdog of this entire offseason is free agency in that I don't think it's going to be particularly impactful uh, looking at the list Mm. of who's available. I think if people are pinning their hopes on free agency this year, they're um, going to be largely disappointed this was before the the DeJounte trade came through that I thought the trade market was going to be the best route for someone to improve themselves. And it, and this isn't new. I looked at last year, te- players that changed teams, very few really had an impact. There was a lot of Evan Fournier's and Devontae Graham's and Kelly Olynyk's and Daniel Tice's out there who got a lot of money, <laughs> who didn't make a big impact on winning. You look at the three Bulls, DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso. That, yeah. Those are big moves. They changed that team. You look at the Kyle Lowry sign and trade. You look at maybe Reggie Bullock in, or excuse me, Bullock in <laughs> yeah. Dallas. You know, a Malik Monk here and an Otto Porter there. Yeah, but these are all like mid-tier impact guys, right? So it's it's an even worse class this year. But I do have a couple of guys who may not command max money who could who could help a team. The first... I know this is going to come as a real shock to you all. He's a, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever mentioned his name before on this podcast. Really <laughs> little known player. But yes, Tyus Jones is a free agent. He uh, just set an all-time record for assist-to-turnover ratio. Okay. The Grizzlies okay. were uh, 3.4 points per 100 possessions better on offense with him on the court. 3.7 points per 100 possessions better on defense with him on the, on the court. He's a 40% three-point shooter. God, it feels like he would be a good fit in Detroit. You've got young guards, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey. Get one stable, solid force to play with them, alongside them. He helps that team a lot. You like Tyus as a starter somewhere? That's a great underdog pick because you can see situations where he doesn't have to make $30 million a year. He can get paid what he's worth, but if he gets inserted into the right situation – could make a huge difference. The interesting thing, of course, is there are very few teams with cap room and very few teams looking for a starting point guard and even less overlap there. So there's not an amazing market for Tyus Jones to the point where a lot of people seem to think that he ends up back in Memphis, who use him both in relief of John Morant and alongside him. 
but I, I feel like this guy has earned his shot to run a team. No, for sure. For sure. And he must be taking notes from Chris Paul, you know, from the better alma mater about his assisted turnover ratio, the point God, <laughs> he's got to be watching a lot of Chris Paul film. I think Tyce Jones, besides the fact that he went to Duke, I really like him as an underrated player in this league. And Memphis has so many good, young, talented players that it almost makes them underrated by default because there's just so many of them. And Jake LaRavia is going to be another one of those players drafted (laughs) out of Wake Forest. I think Tyce Jones makes a lot of sense for a team uh, like a Detroit to sign him to a team-friendly deal and then even flip him at the deadline for long-term picks because I think he is going to outperform his contract here. I do think the market, uh, even though they're not, there are not many uh, teams with cap space, I think he's going to be in a position where if you sign him as a rebuilding team to be running your point guard uh, duties and then an injury happens to, I don't know. Chris Paul? <laughs> yeah, fair, fair <laughs> enough, Jordan. Fair enough. Where they need someone for their playoff push, I think Tyus Jones could really make some sense. I've got a couple other guys, but who do you guys like first before I, uh, I go deeper into my cuts? Juan Toscano Anderson is my guy. He was just uh, sent packing by the Golden State Warriors, and it's kind of the opposite of what we've been talking about. Is the Warriors have so many guys that they're going to be paying this summer that someone like Juan Toscano Anderson is going to be a really, really nice piece for someone. And and we wanted to talk about guys outside of the top 25 in the NBA free agency. And he's someone who I think would be a really good piece for like the Lakers or someone on a, on a vet minimum deal or a mini mid-level where they're going to be able to step right in and be a hard-nosed defender, play really hard. He comes from a franchise that plays the right way in, in uh, he, he's basically been, mentored by Draymond Green and Steph Curry. Like that is a guy that I think could step in very much like Kyle Anderson from the Spurs and playing for the Memphis Grizzlies, where he's just able to do a lot of different things and shoot well and and defend at a high level. Uh, I love a pickup for the Clippers or the Mavericks, any team that's contending that needs a really smart player on the cheap. I feel like Juan Toscano Anderson's a really good buy low candidate. You know who he feels like a fit with, especially since it looks like they're going to lose PJ Tucker. Your Miami Heat. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that would make a lot of sense, and and he he fits the bill of a gamer who plays the right way. So I I, I totally agree with that. I know he's thirty seven, but where where does PJ Tucker end up? Sounds like Philly is almost a foregone conclusion. It's interesting, and he can he can hit threes, right? He can guard multiple positions. I don't know. I, I wonder. Wonder how much he's worth. Sounds like three years, thirty million. It's to take him up to the when he's forty. It's wild. Yeah, gonna be forty. It's the underdog podcast, so I get that PJ Tucker, a guy who's like undrafted basically, and and bounced around international pro ball, and and comes in and becomes a champion and a, and a key piece for title contenders year in year out. I still would have a tough time giving him a three year, you know, thirty million dollar deal at this age. All right. Well, how about somebody who's twenty five and high energy? and can score as long as he doesn't have to shoot it from too far away. How about Derek Jones? Derek Jones Jr. from the Bulls. Um, I've, I've been looking at, I've been trying to find players like the kind Jordan was talking about, guys who have a skill, who aren't max, but are more than minimum, you know, going to get some kind of contract, but need to get in a situation where a team uses them intelligently. And he's just a high-energy player who can play either forward position. I don't know if he's going to, I don't even know if he's going to get a $5 million deal, but... I can see that guy making a difference on a team that needs scoring help. You know, I felt like as a two-way forward, he had his moment and kind of 
didn't emerge with with both uh, Miami and then definitely with Chicago. He's 25, though. Portland also, they tried. Right. Portland has that turnstile of like exactly. wing stretch fours that just... The three, four combo guys, yeah. The churn. But I do think there's a premium on that position. I think you're going to see some real a, a real market for even undersized guys like Gary Payton the second. Bruce Brown's going to get money, I think. Um, Nick Batum, is, it sounds like he's going to go back to the Clippers, but certainly would be worth a lot of money to people and, and Otto Porter. So I, I had to dig deeper for like a 6'8 <laughs> forward who can help a team. And again, there's a, he's a restricted free agent. It sounds like they want him back. But the guy I really like is Amir Coffey of the Clippers. And and I'll tell you why. This past season, according to, to cleaningtheglass.com, he shot 70% at the rim. That's 79th percentile. He was a 38% three-point shooter. That's not a fluke. In a smaller sample, he was actually 45% the year before, including 53% from the corner. He has some defensive ability. He feels like a guy, again, you put him in the right situation where he's playing off the ball, playing off others' penetration, shooting on, on offense, guarding multiple positions on defense and he could be a real contributor to a winner. I just, it doesn't seem like the Clippers are going to let him go. Yeah. He's a good insurance policy for, for their <laughs> wings there, right? Paul George yep. and, and Kawhi Leonard. They've got that position locked down if those guys are healthy, but of course they might not be. Um, I really like, I, I like that pick as well. And I think for me, the big underrated storyline is already overrated. It's been already talked about with the Spurs and just, they traded to Jonte Murray. I think to piggyback on what you said, Jordan, is that this free agency class isn't great, right? There's no LeBron. There's, I mean, yes, there's Kyrie and James Harden, but no one thinks they're going anywhere. So you're dealing with a inflated market for Jalen Brunson. And yes, I know he had a good postseason, but still when he is the, the bell of the ball, it's not a great free agency class. And I actually think, uh, when after what we saw with the Paolo Bancaro draft, when would have gone number one, he would have got, if he was eligible, he would have gone number one this year. And there is, I, I've talked to some people, there is even thought that like a year ago he might have gone number one because of this size. Is he's Rudy Gobert, Rudy Gobert defensively, and offensively he can score, he can move, he can shoot, he can pass, he can dribble. Like imagine Rudy Gobert. I'm not saying Kevin Durant on the offensive end, but even if you had Rudy Gay, all right. If we put Rudy Gay's <laughs> offensive skills with Rudy Gobert's defensive skills and you put him into one player that's an mvp candidate and that's someone that i think at that size seven nine wingspan seven three really smooth player go gay it's all we have to say go gay do you think subconsciously your mind went to rudy's because this is the underdogs podcast yes i think that's what happened subconsciously or above consciously like that is front consciously hyper consciously yeah hyper consciously went rudy on purpose <laughs> I actually do think that people are going to copycat the Spurs and now they're going to see they trade away to John T. Murray. Oh my God. What are they thinking? Wait a minute. Are they tanking? Okay. Maybe we should be doing that too. And so I think the Knicks that are trying to get to 500, oh, wow. I think that's a bad idea. I think the Charlotte Hornets now with their, they got Steve Clifford back and they're going to try to, you know, build a playoff team when really like, can you imagine if, if they had a number two, um, I, I, I just think when you when you go through the next season, I think you're going to see a lot of teams pull the plug earlier with Victor coming down the pipeline. Like 
Look at Portland. If Portland doesn't, if they have a bit bad first half of the season again, I think they're going to be a lot quicker by pulling the plug with a, da- a potential Damian Lillard trade. So I think the teams that act quickest on that are going to stand to gain a lot here. And Greg Popovich has his eyes set, I think, on that number one pick next year. Makes sense to me. Let me ask you another question, just in sort of light of the fact that the best free agent this year probably is DeAndre Ayton, and it seems like there's a very limited market for him. And Phoenix, we'll see what happens, whether they even match an offer sheet and so forth. Would you spend any meaningful money on a big man in today's NBA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, we we had a finals where Kevon Looney was the champ, right? But I, I still think that when you look at what it takes to win in the NBA, you still need an elite big man. I mean, Draymond Green might be 6'4", 6'6", right? But he's still an elite big man in terms of a defender and a point guard. It matters. And I think when you're Robert Williams III on a good knee, are we talking about whether you're going to spend money on a big man? I think we are because I think the replacement level has grown and what we're looking for out of that player is not the same anymore. Let me ask you a different question. Would you spend money on a big man whose value is enhanced because he scores. So a score, an offensive forward like DeAndre. So here's the thing about DeAndre. I think he's a really good player. Would I max him? No, I I wouldn't max him. Um, The development hasn't been there. Like this year, I didn't see enough of him to think, continue to project him as an all-star big. He's like a nice to have, not need to have big man. If I'm spending on a big man, it's like a bam out of bio. It's a guy who could switch out and guard the perimeter, who can impact the game in a lot of different ways. And and if he scores, great. But he's helping me win so many other ways. Yeah. I'm not spending on a – even though he puts up big number like a Vooch, right? Like that's not – Yes. Hmm, that's not ultimately getting me over the hump in, in the conference finals. Yeah, remember when Greg Monroe was getting big money and then he washed out? Yeah. It's amazing how the game has changed. Amazing. It sounds like both of you would spend money up until the point where you get a quality yet still complimentary player not wanting to spend max money on a big man whose size defines his limitations and who can't do a lot of other stuff to build around. With a limited amount of money, I'm spending it on the perimeter. You can win with a Kevon Looney. So how much would you spend on Mitchell Robinson? Not what the Knicks are going to spend. I mean, we talk about smart sh- shot selection. The guy shot 72% for his career because he never takes a shot from anywhere other than the rim, which is what you want somebody like that to do. There's a million guys who can do that. Do they all block 8% of opponent shots while they're in the game? You use the word smart with Mitchell Robinson. Can you build a top five defense with Mitchell Robinson as your defensive leader? I don't think you can. I think he's he's one of these guys like Hassan Whiteside that puts up huge, and Andre Drummond puts up great numbers, super efficient. But if you ask him to be the engineer of a defense for 35 minutes a night, I think it maxes out in the regular season and then teams are running circles around him in the postseason. That's what happens with Hassan Whiteside and Andre Drummond year after year. No, that's fair, but I just get worried that if you have that shot blocking capability and that defense during the regular season and you because you're a bad organization, you look at it you look at a player's weaknesses instead of what he can do. So you get rid of the player, you let him walk, you don't spend, and you don't spend that money on better value in replacing him because you're a bad organization, then you just have a giant hole in the middle of your team. And that's what happens to bad teams year after year after year. They look at what a guy can't do without knowing what they can do to take advantage of the opportunity cost of letting him go. That's all. 
Well, it's okay because they got Nerlens Noel. Oh wait, never mind. They traded. No, no, he's gone. No, they they cleared <laughs> another nineteen million, which is by the way more than the Knicks need for Brunson, right? And so if they're not going to sign re-sign Robinson, what are they going to do? Give Brunson thirty five million dollars a year? That's exactly right. Oh my gosh, I hope not. Well, other than your New York Knicks guys and Peter, your Utah Jazz, yes. we really should zero in on. But are there any other teams that you see that is an underdog of this this off season that that could make a move from maybe on the fringe of title contention to real title contention or out of the playoffs to in the playoffs. Anybody you're eyeing? I think Cleveland's really interesting because they can do a whole bunch of different things. They can, um, they don't have cap space like to, to sign a big time player, but there's not a big time player that I think they need, but they're just so young. They're so young that I think with Jared Allen healthy, um, they would be right, be- right in the mix as a, a second tier in the Eastern conference. I mean, you look at their, uh, their core, it's Darius Garland, 22, Evan Mobley, 20, uh, Okaro. Well, he's he's fresh out of college, too. The Colin Sexton decision is going to be really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Especially because I love Karis LeVert. And at some point, you have to make a decision, right? You do. I just think that team is really, really interesting going forward because they were almost like overrated because they came out to such a hot start last year, Mm -hmm. but then they fell off a cliff. And so if they can kind of get back to where they were with Karis LeVert and and trying to figure out Colin Sexton and where he fits in now, I could see them making that ascension into that top tier. Don't you think that if you just draw the lines where you expect them to go, you're not expecting 18 weird things to break right all at the same time, just Reasonable expectations for the young players they've acquired that uh, Detroit's on a pretty good path. Uh, They're on the path. They just started walking on it. Yeah, but that's exciting rather than like what we call the churn. I mean, you know what would help them more is Tyus Jones. (laughs) Indeed. I'm eyeing the Hornets. I think if they re-sign Miles Bridges, LaMelo Ball's got it. Are they a couple moves away from being a playoff team? Probably. Could they work out a sign and trade with uh, Miles Bridges and DeAndre Ayton? Do you think they could do that and swing for their five? Oh, you're saying, oh, no, we got to give the the keys to Dookie, Mark Williams. <laughs> exactly. <five."> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm interested in what the Bucks do to find a, another wing-oriented player. They clearly have a deficiency there. They need one more guy. Hey, Dante DiVincenzo has uh, been non-tendered, basically cut from the, from the Kings. So there you go. How good would Gary Payton look there? Oh, yeah. Mm. That should be our podcast is like, how do teams find the next Gary Payton? Because that guy is awesome. And we'll see what happens with him, too. We talk about Gary Payton, Herb Jones, and Taya. <laughs> what do you think Herb Jones would go for on the market right now? A ton, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He'd go for 20, 20 mil a year, for sure. What about Tom's favorite underdog pick from last season, the Lakers? <laughs> Look at that. What a wreckage we're looking at there. That's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? Hey, it was always on the contingency that they had to get into the playoffs, and then they had a high ceiling. So we still, it's kind of like a technicality that they didn't make the playoffs. It was a title pick if they made the playoffs, and they didn't make the playoffs. Whoops. I would have voted for you if you had only won the primary type of thing, right? Yeah, yes, yeah, of course. Yes. That's right. Well, enough looking ahead. Let's look back all the way back to last week at what may have been the most dramatic NBA draft betting scenario in history. We're going to talk to Ben Fox, uh, the Visa Network, our old friend, coming up next. For the past 30 years, care heating and cooling 
put you first. You are the reason they are open seven days a week. You are why they make it easy to schedule service at careheatingandcooling.com. Concern for your safety is why they check every gas furnace for carbon monoxide. It's because of you that their technicians are paid to fix your furnace and air conditioner, not sell you a new one. And if you do need a new furnace, their team will make sure you get exactly what you need at a cost that fits your budget. Care Heating and Cooling is committed to doing business right. Call them at 1-800-COOLING. When you need a company, you can trust. Betters won, Woj lost, and it was an NBA draft that we won't soon forget. My story for VEASAN Live on the number one market and a sports betting day that will forever live in infamy. I put in the forever in there, Ben, but I think that stays true. Ben Fox is joining us from VEASAN, the VP of digital content. You wrote an amazing piece going inside the betting market for the number one draft pick in the NBA, and it was a wild day. So thank you for joining us on the Underdogs podcast. Of course, guys. It's an ESPN reunion. You know, I, I think we uh, got to make sure we don't get derailed for 10 minutes here telling all sorts of stories. We should get uh, Sobel back on to really extend that ESPN. It's, every <laughs> week is an ESPN reunion. Yeah, we were trying to figure out if if you'd actually edited Keating or if it was just you and your ivory tower telling you to, when to file and when basically bossing Keating around. No, I think I probably edited at some point. There, there was pro- It took a while to get up to that ivory tower, and it was certainly not a tower or ivory. It took a while because he was late turning it in, correct? There was a lot of material to clean up when Jordan was writing giant killers. So, you know, we, we both had a lot of work on our hands. I think Ben may not have uh, strong memories of editing me, but I think he probably has better memories of what the 2015 and 16 holiday parties. Maybe, maybe those, maybe those were more career high points than his, even though he was a long-standing champion of giant killers, right? I don't know how uh, great my memory is from those, but yes, I, I do remember attending them. So I want to get inside this story because I, I really, I thought it was great because this is kind of like the fourth rail of, of media and betting markets. And it's kind of why I think you're a perfect fit um, in this position and, and writing about this and covering uh, something that I don't think anyone else was covering until you wrote about it. But basically, can you walk the the listeners through why this particular you decided to write this story? Like you were just watching, um, watching all the the information flowing through Vegas and outside about the number one pick and Paolo Bancara and Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith, and it was crazy. So wh- why did you write the article? Yeah, so this kind of started, sports books have more and more with these, what we call event-based kind of situations, right? So the NFL draft, NBA draft, even betting on the Oscars, they put these up a decent amount beforehand. So Caesar Sportsbook, I think, opened this uh, in early April. And what was interesting is that Jabari Smith was the favorite. He was basically the favorite everywhere to go number one. I think he was about plus 110, plus 115. Chet Holmgren was second. He was, you know, plus 150, plus 170. And Paolo was about two to one, so plus 200. So it opened up as kind of a three-horse race, roughly. And then over the course of the next month, month and a half, I think whether or not that was stuff coming out of the combine, whether it was that Paolo didn't have, I think, an official workout with the Magic, uh, somebody hearing something, his odds drifted. And he was basically 
15 to 1, 20 to 1, whereas Chet Holmgren uh, and Jabari were at one point co-favorites even a week before the draft. So it really was kind of went from a three-horse race to a two-horse race. At some point over the weekend, there was kind of one group of bettors, and this was the weekend before the draft uh, coming that Thursday, who started betting Paolo at 15 to 1, 20 to 1, just because I think they thought the odds were too long. They should be. It's kind of a three-horse race that, again, is priced right now in, at that time as a two-horse race. So they were kind of taking their shot there. Late Sunday night, early Monday morning, a couple of Vegas books opened it up, a couple of books in Nevada. And then I think there was a much smaller group of people who had some, shall we say, very good information that probably nobody else had that Paolo, it was pretty likely he was going number one. And so, you know, I talked to people in Vegas, people in New Jersey. Uh, in New Jersey, for example, they opened it up, uh, one casino in Atlantic City. They opened Palo at nine to one. Their first four bets were all on Palo to go number one. They moved him to seven to one. Then they took a bet, a limit bet, to go uh, Palo number one from somebody who generally has information before others have information. They went to five to one, three to one, and kind of went from there. So you kind of had your initial group of bettors betting it over the weekend, early Monday morning, just because, hey, these odds seem off. Then you had people betting it, I think, who knew probably more than others that this would be the case. And then you had a third set of people who were seeing the odds move and then were saying, oh, something's going on here. But really, this story is kind of fascinating because that all was happening Sunday night, Monday. The odds basically remained the same until Wednesday. And then Wednesday night, Paolo flipped to actually the favorite. He was minus 150, minus 200 overnight. And then the story really got interesting Thursday morning, the Thursday of the draft, when Woj tweets out, I think around, I don't know, 8.30 a.m., that it's increasingly firm that Jabari is going number one, Chet's going number two, uh, and Paolo is going number three. Sportsbooks takes the odds down. They repost Jabari, giant favorite. And honestly, at that point, I thought it was basically a nice story to cover, but nothing was going to happen because when's the last time that Woj has been wrong, right? So it was something at that point I was monitoring. I kind of had some base reporting done, but I never thought there was actually going to be a story here because you guys can speak to this better than I can, but I, I don't really remember when he was wrong. And so it was only until after he basically started saying on the NBA pregame show, you know, half an hour before the draft that, oh, wait, Paolo you know, he's in the running and then it looks like it might be him. And then 10 minutes later, it was him that it was like, oh, wow, this is actually a story and kind of especially a small number of bettors and then a growing number had information. They were betting it a certain way. Woj had other information and the bettors got it right. And that's not really a situation that usually happens. So those final 24 hours, what I really want to dig in with you on. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but after the Woj tweet and, and when everything tilted back toward Jabari, didn't more Bancaro bets start coming in throughout the day again and the, and, the, and the odds tilted again to the point where even before the 30-minute before the show tweet that he'd moved again very close to Jabari? Is that right? Yeah. So I think it was FanDuel that reopened and they had Jabari minus 10,000 and uh, Paolo plus 900. 
And then over the course of the day, slowly, which again, that's a, a ridiculous split, right? If you know he's minus 10,000, it should not be plus 900 on the other side. It should be far, far uh, past that. And slowly that started to come down. Um, I think it got as low as Jabari minus 135 and Paolo plus 100. But then Jabari money came in as well. And so before that NBA pregame show, Jabari was still the favorite. There was still respected money betting Jabari, I think, because they figured you could now get him at a much smaller price than you could the last couple of weeks. I think as well, there's the distinction between kind of the public and the sharper bettors. The public was hammering Jabari on Thursday, right? Because Woj tweeted that this was going out. And now, even though the odds are going down, well, I can get Jabari at minus 600, Jabari at minus 300, Jabari at minus 200. Is Woj really going to be wrong? And so I think that was the kind of the battle. And I want to dig into this more, but do you have any sense? I, I can't think of a time where there was such a clear battle of information in two camps, two respected camps, as what we saw with what Woj tweeted versus what at least certain people in Vegas seem to know. Does that does that ring any bells in your memory? And why do you think this emerged with such a drastic split? So this is the wildest situation I can remember. We saw a little of it with the NFL draft, where it was Aiden Hutchinson versus uh, Trayvon Walker. But once kind of information was out potentially that Trayvon Walker was going number one and he moved to the odds on favorite and never moved back. That was the big thing. He just stayed as the Trayvon Walker stayed as the favorite. So that's typically how it goes with a situation like this. I think I want to say with Kyler Murray and Heisman a couple years ago, there was something kind of similar to that as well. The biggest thing, honestly, is the presidential election, which obviously you can't bet on in the U.S., but some, the last couple, there have been that where looking at kind of the electoral college map and the results being tabulated, it's saying one thing on TV and the betting markets then potentially wildly switch and shift. And that has portended who's going to win quicker sometimes than the actual TV and tabulation and all of that. That's kind of the closest comp, I think. Certainly than the actual tabulation. Right, right. <laughs> Wait, Jordan, I want to ask you one question. When you talked about Woj's tweet, you weren't talking you were talking about the second stage, right? Not the first increasingly firm as draft get finance. You're talking about the the zag that came after the zig, right? That caused the lines to move back. Well, no. The big change was things had moved toward Bancaro, then Woj tweets that it's looking firm, that it's Jabari. That moves it, totally shifts it in his direction. Right, right. The reason I'm the reason I'm asking is because he did send that further tweet or the the change change my mind or try to catch up with the situation tweet while the pregame show was on that said as the magic moved closer to getting on the clock, Paolo now looming to be the front runner, and that that caused that also caused lines to move. The lines had already moved, right, Ben? At that point, so Peter is right. It did shift. Jabari was the favorite still before Woj said that on the air and then tweeted. And then it did shift. And I think that was both reflective of A, Woj having updated reporting, B, sharp betters who were pretty sure now hammering the fact that, okay, it really looks like Jabari is going number one. And then the public seeing that and going, oh, I bet on Jabari, I better hammer Paolo. 
and try and make my money back or make some more money. So that's really what shifted before the odds then closed, you know, a minute before the draft. And the only reason I ask is because that that second effect seems to reinforce even more Woj's ability to move lines with his pronouncements because it wasn't the herd didn't just move one way because of information that was in the air. He said stuff, it moved that way, and then he said contradictory, well, updated, to use Ben's kind words. Um, and then the, the, lines, the lines moved back. The Washington Post, I'm not sure who they were looking at, whether they're looking at DraftKings or whoever, but they said by the time he was picked, uh, Paula had lurched back to minus 800. Now, I'm not sure who had lines open you know, at that moment, but... The zig and the zag are both interesting, interesting together. The fascinating part about all this, Ben, is we're still in the infancy of widespread sports betting in a social media environment and particularly betting on events. I live in New York. I can't bet on events. I, could, I can't bet on the draft. I can't bet on the Oscars. I can't bet on MVPs. So I've sort of watched this from the sidelines. It remains remarkable to me, first of all, if you can explain why sports books allow this how it how it's good for them if someone may actually have the information and then the potential for corruption if if people know things and have the ability to and not saying that's what went on here but you could see someone in a difficult financial situation who might have access to information as a reporter could certainly skew things with one tweet so, so why do sportsbooks open these markets, and where could this go as we move along the spectrum? To your point, yeah, with kind of now 30 states legalized, it's a kind of patchwork framework of certain states allow this event-based wagering. In some states, like in Nevada, it has to be taken down 24 hours before the event actually starts. So different sportsbooks out here actually didn't get hurt as badly because they didn't have that wave of Paolo money. Uh, one book I know had actually 93% of their money on Jabari because then they took it down. They missed the wave of Paolo and then they missed all of Thursday's wagering. <laughs> so it does depend on, on the state. In terms of why sports books offer it, it's basically because other sports books are offering it, right? <laughs> and so in our, our current age of capitalism and competition, right? If if one is offering it and I'm trying to get customers and they want to bet on it and I'm not offering it, well, they're going to go to the other book to bet on it. So they kind of know they're likely going to lose on this because like you said, unlike betting, you know, a Ravens Giants game, where even if I have some information that Lamar Jackson might be out, they still have to cover the spread or win, right? It's not event-based where it's like, if I know he's going number one, he's going number one. There's nothing else to it. So it is a different animal in that sense. I think that the biggest takeaway from all this is just that no one is infallible, right? So don't, I've been saying, don't risk your bankroll on a tweet. And I think that goes both ways. You know, sports books are going to react because who has a lot better information, the sports book manager behind the counter or Woj, right? It's going to be assumed that it's Woj. And like you said, in today's age of social media and everything, things just move at lightning speed. And so all bookmakers have TweetDeck, they have Twitter, they're following generally all the same people, but professional bettors have groups of people scouring mock drafts, scouring press conferences, local newspapers. They're going to have more information than the bookmakers. 
which is why, like I said, they're generally going to lose on these events. I think it's something they'll continue to offer. In terms of the uh, whether or not there could be something, uh, you know, untoward, I guess, the way they guard against that is the limits are pretty low with the betting, right? So, you know, there was someone at DraftKings who I think they bet $10,000 on um, Paolo at number one at five to one. That's $50,000. That's a, that's a nice win, but it's not $5 million. And so, you know, the amount of money generally to move the market is low. The bets that they take, $10,000 is a big bet for a draft market like that, are generally pretty low. And then, like I've been telling everyone who's been DMing me and texting about Woj conspiracy theories, you know, uh, he has so much more to lose from the credibility of being wrong on an event like this than anywhere close to what he could potentially gain from some quid pro quo um, down the road or you know, you do this and then you feed me a free agency rumor down the line. Like the math just doesn't add up there in, in any stretch. You know, we're the ones who are probably going to remember more than the public. Wait, wait, Ben, Ben, it doesn't add up for Woj because he's made a career out of leveraging his expertise and the speed with which he obtains this information. Well, and he's also making a tremendous amount of money. That too. Yes, but that doesn't mean it doesn't add up for somebody in the Orlando just hypothetically, I'm not, I don't have any knowledge myself of any of this, but somebody in the front office who can influence Woj, who might stand to gain a lot. I mean, the, the costs and benefits are here are not the costs and benefits just to Woj. They're to anybody who has a stake in influencing this decision. I mean, last year, uh, Doug Kazarian, the guy who hosts ESPN's Daily Wager, went to self-service kiosks at BetMGM and bet $3,500, including on the NFL, on NFL draft picks, including uh, a bet on Tyson Campbell becoming the first safety selected in the draft, even though most people had him listed as a cornerback. BetMGM had him on the board as a safety. He went with the first pick in the second round. And this is ESPN host, Doug Kazarian, won $300,000 and then talked about it on air. Now, I guess if you <laughs> disclose stuff, you know, I, I'm a little curmudgeonly about this because I started my career at Money Magazine, where everything's written in the second person. Everything is basic. Everything is invest for the long haul by buying index funds with low expenses. And you do this, you'll be okay for retirement. And when somebody comes along that makes the system seem like it could be rigged in any way, just blows up the whole equation. And I could never write about a stock that I, I could never buy a stock I was writing about, even if I said, I mean, I know there's this whole countervailing theory. Oh, I own Intel. I believe in this so much and I'm writing about it favorably that I've bought it. And that's supposed to be a good thing. But I don't know. I was never allowed to do that when I was writing about companies and financial journalism. I know a lot of people do it, but is it disclosure that's required? We can't expect somebody like Woj to disclose what he knows or where it's coming from. So that can't be the answer. So what about, I mean, what about Jordan's question about the risks for corruption among people whose, you know, pluses and minuses aren't just dependent on them maintaining their public expertise. Yeah, it's a tough one. I'll be honest. I think the greater risk is for team employees, let's say, or people who have access to the information who aren't making that much versus a reporter, especially somebody with the profile of Woj, right? Like, especially with widespread legalization now, right? 30 plus states 
if in a hypothetical, let's say, a betting group could pay a, a employee, somebody who has access to that a certain amount of money, and then they know something, and then they can get down in 30 states off of that information, that could be, to me, that's the bigger risk. Ben, when money was coming in on Paolo, when you were alluding to the fact that they had information or they had intuition, whatever you want to describe it as on Paolo, are you suggesting that like someone knew the pick was Paolo and then they went and put the money down? Or are you just saying, hey, they're really sharp. They're, they just saw the market and it was a pure arbitrage, just like, hey, there's really good value here on Paolo. So no one knows who the number one pick is. And if he's the longest of the three, I'm going Paolo. Like, what do you think happened there? So I think there were some that were the latter. I think the, there were some that were the former, though. I, I do think that through some means, and I have some unconfirmed sources, uh, a group got access to this information before Woj. And whether the magic were changing their mind, which seems unlikely since they've had the pick since, you know, forever. And also it's a little odd, right? Because it's the number one pick. So unless I guess they thought maybe the Rockets wanted to trade up from three to one and you could get another asset and still get Paolo at three, there's no other great reason to have so much secrecy for the number one pick because there's nobody you have to fool. You get to choose whatever player, whoever you want. So that would be my best guess is that somehow a group of betters, likely a very small group to start, kind of knew that information. And then betting circles work this way, especially sharp betting circles where somebody knows something who shares it with somebody who now fourth hand, oh, I heard from a guy who knows a guy who has a guy that, that Paolo's going number one. I think that's really on Wednesday night when that got out to the betting, the sharp betting public. Uh, that information. But I do think, to your point, you guys have said, I think for the people who bet Paolo in that latter category, just based on the odds, I do think they were still a little concerned after the Woj tweet early on Thursday morning. Yes. Because still, ultimately, you're going against Woj there. I'm not a conspiracy-minded person in general, but you can already see the movie script in the situation, right? Where some people hook up with a low-level magic employee and also the beat writer for the Orlando Sentinel who's making 60 grand a year and they make them an offer they can't refuse. You give me the information front office guy, you tweet it reporter and we'll take care of you. It's if I were a, a team or a league or a media organization, I would be concerned about this. This is there is you're right, there are bet limits and there may be you can't make millions off this, but compared to what people make in some of these lower level positions and certainly in journalism, there's real financial self-interest to blur the lines of ethics, especially if they don't feel like they're hurting anyone. I guarantee you that at some point we're going to have this sort of a situation. It's a matter of time. The environment is pretty ripe for this with injury reports, right? The NBA is already, and I'm not an expert on the NFL side, although they do it, you know, a week ahead of the game, they have to put those reports in the NBA followed suit. But, um, you know, there have been times where the market moves before the actual injury report is out. And then the it's public information that Kawhi Leonard is out or that uh, Russell Westbrook is out, whatever it is. 
Um, so it, we already are dealing with that information gap or potential corruption there. And the NBA has been very strong about this, that it is very against policy to leak that information. And any of your official injury information has to be disseminated to the NBA first and not to different sources and whisper, uh, <clears throat> whisper channels. Excuse me. So Ben, when we have the 2023 NBA draft, or I guess the the next NFL draft, do you think the market's going to change? Um, of course, you can't predict whether it's going to be an obvious number one pick and there's going to be no uncertainty there. But do you think that what we saw this year is going to cause changes in how the sports book operates? Because I was pretty taken away by your story that there was a huge variance between sports books on how well they did on draft night. So it seems like some, some sports books are going to handle things differently than others, but what are you projecting is going to happen going forward? It's a great question. I would probably say absolutely nothing. <laughs> I think this is more probably of a one-off now we'll see, right? It could be a similar situation next year's NFL draft. I think it's pretty quarterback heavy where all of a sudden someone starts shooting up the boards or there's, you know, I think also with these event-based situations, you also always have to read what the bet is, right? And so it's the player to be picked number one, which means that someone trading up to do that, you know, the Magic weren't necessarily the team that was going to make the first pick. Somebody else could also have traded into the first pick and taken that guy. So there is still, especially with the NFL draft and kind of usually more trades, you know, there's a little more variance there too. I think sports folks are going to keep offering it, keep keeping the limits fairly low and just figure it's kind of a publicity cost and cost of doing business that, hey, if Sportsbook A is doing it and Sportsbook B is doing it and we're Sportsbook C, we can't afford not to do it as long as we're not hemorrhaging money by doing it. Could you see more states regulating this in the way New York does, where they don't allow the sports books to offer it? My guess would be if there was a change, it would be taking it down uh, with a greater distance before the draft, right? Nevada's been doing this for a long time. There's a reason they take it down <laughs> 24 hours before the draft. And that's why a lot of books out here, a lot of books in Vegas didn't even offer an NBA draft market because they were kind of just tired of being beaten and it's not a big handle event and people are still going to be coming to Vegas and casinos and sports books. So they don't have as much competition necessarily as some of the larger national brands. That would be my guess is more states go to a, hey, it's 12 hours before the draft, right? Or four hours or it, it is a little wild that there are markets available, you know, five minutes before the number one pick. Right. So, and again, that just depends on the state. That would be probably the reaction I would think is most likely from this. And so as with so many gambling issues, the final answer is it's going to move offshore sooner rather than later. Oh, it's there. Yeah. And honestly, the, <laughs> the Palo money was coming in offshore before it was at the legal books, which is a lot of times how it goes uh, as well. So it's it's a fascinating story. I think the the media aspect is a fascinating part as well, um, especially with Woj and Schefter and people who are 
you know, speaking to millions and tens of millions of people with one tweet. Well, I'm going to start working on the screenplay. And if only there were a conspiracy minded NBA podcast that could delve deeper into this, <laughs> someone really should start one of those because this is a fertile topic. Look at that cross promotion. Yeah, he already shot that down. Ben was like, I don't, I'm not assuming. Well, okay, fine. You, you went there, Jordan. <laughs> My third eye is always open. Did anyone in your reporting, not you accusing that there was anything untoward, but anyone that you talked to was like, something something was up here? Yes, but from one source that wasn't very difficult to confirm multiple sources. We'll, we'll just say that. Okay. I do think there is a, a, larger, a larger story here of some connection. And like you said, how, if indeed there was a group that had the information first, a betting group, how that information was gotten. I think to Jordan's point as well, I'll keep it brief, you know, from the employee side too, if you give out that information, you know, it's kind of like in the old days, ESPN employees talking to Deadspin, right? Like there is a no-no, even if you give that out and there can't be that many people who knew what the pick was, right? I would imagine it's single digits, you know, or low double digits. It's probably fairly easy to figure out where this came from. and. Who knows what effect that would have on an individual trying to get another job in the business as well. Oh, man, this is good stuff. Ben, thank you so much for joining the Underdogs podcast. This will be the first of many appearances I, I foresee. So thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, fellas. A blast. Blast from the past. What's that? Do you guys hear that? That's Vet the Bet. Let's go. Another round of Vet the Bet. Yes, it's the internet's hottest new game show in which I research the history of a particular bet. And you guys, my panelists, my esteemed contestants here, Peter Keating and Jordan Brenner, have to vet the bet and see which one is the correct answer. So in the past, I believe Peter Keating is running up the score. I think he's up to three to one on the scoreboard. But I have a Wimbledon-style vet the bet here. Are you guys ready? Absolutely. Bring it. Serve it up, Tom. I'm going to serve it up like a Joey Chestnut hot dog and scarf it right down. All right, here we go. In the past decade, the men's Wimbledon hasn't seen a winner with a pre-round one odds of plus 1,000 or longer. The winner of the men's Wimbledon in the past decade hasn't had a pre-round one odds at plus 1,000 or longer. Very chalky in the men's Wimbledon side. It's been Novak's tournament. Get it? Novak's? Just pretend that didn't happen. (sighs) On the women's side, how many plus 1,000 or longer winners have there been in the past decade? So this is the Underdogs podcast. Basically, 10 to 1 odds long shots at 10 to one or longer on the women's side have actually won the Wimbledon in the past decade. So I'm going to make it easy for you guys. In the past, I do a multiple choice, A, B, C, D, or E. But today I'm going to set the over under at five and a half long shot winners. Oh, 
Tricky. So, because Peter, you have had the advantage on the scoreboard, I'm going to let you go first, and then I will have Jordan decide whether he wants to go in on it with you or pick the other side of it. So, the over-under, five-and-a-half long-shot wins on the women's Wimbledon. Uh, I feel like there's probably a number of long shots that have won who I wasn't rooting for, so I'm going to overlook them as having been. Uh, so I'm going to say, I will take the over. What the hell? This is the Underdogs podcast. Why are we talking about this if the answer is two? I will say over. And if you want, I can sing once, twice, three times the lady. But we won't get to my pick for the tournament till later, if at all. Probably not at all. Oh, wait, I also want to say this. We got Ben Fox to open up a betting line on this, so I just want to say... As my thoughts are finalizing, over seems to be the bet that's coming in from me. So put all your money down and then I'll switch it to under and then I'll switch it to over again and see if I can move the lines in real time here. Are you increasingly firm on over five and a half? I'm increasingly firm. Peter is decreasingly firm. Believe me. (laughs) I'm decreasing. I mean, I I am firm at an uncertain rate. So Paolo and I will say over. I am going to go under. It's a cheap attempt to score bet the bet points. I feel like Serena alone probably accounts for a certain portion of those titles. I I wish I were as good on tennis as I was a decade or two ago, and I could have run off the the champions in my in my head. As you were a decade ago at what? Oh, oh, at tennis. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Hard to pick from your fields of expertise. But my mind has gone. But I know I'm going to go under. I agree with you that I don't know why Tom would be doing this if it weren't over, but I still, I'm going to go with my gut, which is under. Okay. Drum roll, please. The answer is under. Woohoo! Oh! Oh! Congratulations, Jordan. You're closing the gap. Was it three? What was the answer? There have been five. Oh, what a show. Yes. 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 There have been five. 2019, Simona Halep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Plus 1,800 before round one. 2018, the year before that, Angelique Kerber at plus 1,200. Garbine Muguruza, plus 1,600. 2014, Petra Kivitova was at plus 1,000 right there. With these names, how do we end up at only five? This is this is crazy. Next week, we're just going to have Peter read women's tennis names for an hour. But here's the best one. 2013, Marion Bartoli was plus 10,000. Who could forget? Pre-round one odds to win the Wimbledon. And she didn't drop a single set in her tournament play, which is insane. She's plus 10,000 to win the Wimbledon, and she didn't even drop a single set, Marianne Bartoli. So that's five. We should have her on the show. That's amazing. Now, I got to be honest, in 2011, plus 900, very close to hitting the over. Oh, this is uh, this is the, the, <laughs> this is the tyranny of selective endpoints. That's what this is. A win is a win, Peter, and it tastes good. That's right. Like a yeah. Joey Chestnut hot dog. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.